just starting a new series on faithfulness, and you've just walked in at the right time. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the second session following Abraham last week, but we're now looking at patterns of faithfulness in the life of Joseph. Joseph's story is Genesis 37 to 52, the rest of the, the book, of, of the first book of the Bible. And Joseph's life goes like this. Can anyone else testify to their life doing this? It's not, and in the context of baptism as well, it's not going to be from this point up to there. In the context of eternity and glory, it's going to be that. But in this life, faithfulness when things go very wrong is an extremely important lesson of faith for us to learn. All right. And so in the context of baptism on this great and glorious day, we pray protection for you guys and for Vicky, who's not quite here yet. We pray protection from the enemy, from attack, from your own thoughts. We pray that the life of Christ will reign in and through you, uh, as, as we do for all of us as well. But faithfulness when things go wrong. Did any of you notice the arrogance of Jacob? 17 years old and look how cocky he is. Oh, I've had a dream, brothers. Let me tell you about it. I'm like the sun and you are the stars bowing down to me. What? The fact that I think the arrogance was born out of knowing that he was his daddy's favourite. Like my father is here in the house today and everyone knows that I'm his favourite. But it's... <laughs> Amen, Dad? But in these, in these stories, we get full, we're full of insights into human behavior and attitudes. But more importantly, as you read through the chapters, and please do, because the, the life of Joseph is so much loved by believers down the centuries. But what do we see primarily? The sovereign hand of God working through the life of the individual over time and space. Working out his plans, his wonders, to perform. Can anyone here testify to God's wonders to perform? Yes. Yes, we can. As much as we can testify to our life-taking dips like this, we can also testify to the greatness of our sovereign God who carries us despite the trials and tribulations, despite when things go very wrong. So for all those who are baptised into new life in Christ, face this very issue. Vicky, yeah. Jess and Jan, things will go wrong. But the anchor that you have now is Christ himself. And he has promised he will never let you go. Never. He will never let you go. Things will go wrong Sometimes it will go wrong because of you. You will, you will do things because we're sinful creatures. That's why we have the provision of forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. We come to a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Maybe things will go wrong because of things done to you. Like Joseph put in prison for false accusations. Either way, guys and the same for everyone else, but I'm primarily going to address you because it's your baptism day. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your life. 
So when a person commits to following Jesus, of course, it's a glorious and a a wonderful thing, right? But if there is a saviour of the world, then there's a devil in the world. God has an enemy. And he prowls around, the Bible says, like a roaring lion. But you must know that he is on a leash. And God has got the other end. And his time is limited. He's already defeated. And one day he will be destroyed. So we start to get a hint of the problem of Joseph's life in Genesis 37 when he's just 17. We're told, as we've said, that he's the youngest and the favourite of his father Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So Joseph is the great-grandson of the patriarch Abraham. We're told that he's the (laughs) favourite. It's never a good idea to have favourites as a parent. But hands up if you do. Well, if you do have a favourite, don't ever tell them. Right, that's the top tip. Don't ever tell them that you do have a favourite. Because it just breeds in the mind of a teenager. My goodness, the arrogance. It's staggering, isn't it? Anyway, Joseph had a God-given gift of dream interpretation. Some of you may have that gift amongst us. I'd be very surprised if nobody here has the gift of dream interpretation. But when you're the favourite son of a, uh, and a, and a cocky 17-year-old, favourite son of a favourite father, and you tell stories about your family, your brothers bowing down to you, I guess it's probably the way you tell them. A bit like my joke session a couple of weeks ago, shush. Even, I think, the most virtuous, patient saints would struggle to hear because of the arrogance of Joseph's storytelling, even though God gave the dream. It's a a hard lesson for his brothers to learn. I've got a lot of sympathy for them. And this storytelling of his dreams provoked his brothers to jealousy. Has anyone here ever been jealous of anyone? Hands up, please. Is there anyone here who has never, ever been jealous of anybody, ever? All right, we're all in the same boat, right? We need Christ, don't we? So, jealousy was what provoked them to actually provoke them to murderous rage. Anyone been provoked to murderous rage? (laughs) The list goes on, right? We need Christ. It's as simple as that. I can't believe it's true that none of you have ever been provoked to jealousy, but jealousy is a nasty vice, isn't it? It's nasty. It's It's bitter. And God calls us out of that life of comparison and and jealousy. And we live in a world of comparisons now. On the internet, we call them influencers, for example. And it's, it's a premise built on provoking people to jealousy of a lifestyle, primarily. But we're, we're so easily succumbed to it. So Joseph's brothers are so mad they conspire to kill him, but one of the brothers has the sense to say, don't kill him, let's sell him into slavery and take him far away, but pretend that he's been killed by an animal and we'll soak the lovely coat of many colours in blood and tell our father that he's been eaten by a wild animal. And the the rest of the boys agreed to this. So Joseph is sold into slavery when things start going very wrong, right? So Joseph becomes a servant to an Egyptian, this is after the passage that was read, to a man called Potiphar. 
But Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. It's an astonishing story. So Potiphar obviously throws him in prison. Think now about Joseph's psychological state. What is he going through? Innocence, though he is. In prison, on false charges, in a foreign country, and separated from his family. What is in his mind at this point? Now think about his faith in God that has been taught to him by his father, Jacob, whose faith in God was taught by his father, Isaac. Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, whose faith was taught to him by him. What's going through his mind? Where is God now? And this question will arise in your life. It's called the dark night of the soul and it's been experienced by many, many Christians down the centuries. And you will experience that absence, but in reality, God is still with you. But the experience of it is a completely different thing altogether. And if you notice in the story, at every point, Jacob maintains his faithfulness towards people and towards God. It's an astonishing collection of chapters. It seems now that the arrogance of youth has been knocked out of him by the school of hard knocks. How do you remain a faithful believer in God when these things are happening? When unjust accusations are swirling around? When life seems to be so impossibly difficult? And we say, as, as many of the psalmists do, where are you, God? So Joseph was suffering unjustly, and we have all experienced unjust suffering. And the Bible story of Joseph is here to show us how God operates in our lives despite the surface level of things. So despite appearances... God is at work all the time in you, in us, all the time, working out his sovereign plan. Whilst in prison, Joseph started interpreting the dreams of prisoners. <laughs> and those prisoners got released and then Joseph was forgotten. But Suddenly it came to mind in Pharaoh's court that Joseph could interpret dreams and Pharaoh himself was troubled. So called Joseph out of the prison into the throne room and interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And suddenly Pharaoh falls in love with him and makes him second in command over the entire nation and empire of Egypt. The global superpower at this point. Joseph's now number two in charge. From the pit of a prison on false charges of rape, he has now been promoted right to the top. And not once does he lose the integrity of his faith. Not once. He'd been the victim of jealousy and slavery, false accusation and imprisonment. That is a lot to bear for anybody. But God had given him a gift that got him out of this particular trouble. And so when the famine in Canaan struck, Abraham's large family went to Egypt where they had been saving grain upon the basis of what Joseph was saying to them. We need to store the grain for years and years and years for the famine that's coming. 
Do you think Joseph had any thought of revenge when he saw his family? He had virtual ultimate power. He could have exacted revenge on his brothers. Very tempting. But Joseph knew that he was now placed to exercise forgiveness and salvation. To extend that reach to his desperate, hungry family. The one to whom God had not stopped speaking and promising into. The family that will be like the stars of the sky. And if you've been anywhere where we don't have light pollution, that is a staggering sight to behold. And this is why Joseph is a type of Christ. He is a blueprint for the figure and the person of Jesus Christ, offering that forgiveness, bringing salvation and the, and the redemption of his family through his position in Egypt. So I want to encourage you to read the rest of these stories again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, it doesn't matter. But I want to make one thing plain as we finish. Faithfulness, when things go wrong, is never a sign of God's impotence. Faithfulness, when things go wrong, is never a sign of God's impotence. Never. God is always the sovereign Lord. And God permits things to go wrong because we live in a fallen and fractured world. But in his mysterious way, he will step in to accomplish his divine plan of salvation. Jan, when you mentioned yet you're yet to discover the gifts that God has for you, he will show you. You have them. And the same for, for Jess and for Vicky. He will show you if you don't know them already. And every person is uniquely gifted in the, for the kingdom of God in particular ways. Because we're not machines. God doesn't make robots. He makes people in his image that he loves. And in his mysterious way, he will also step in, in his time, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in our life. And all our shortcomings, we're human. We have mountains of shortcomings. All our shortcomings are not going to stop God from doing this. But he does guarantee us his presence. Even if he does not guarantee that we will never be treated unfairly. He doesn't guarantee that. But he does say, I will be with you. So when things go wrong, and they will, sorry, it might sound negative, but it's not, because you've put yourself at the spearhead point now of Christian faith, and there's going to be lashback, but the church is praying for you. So when things go wrong, and they will, you ask, what is God up to? Joseph in the prison, God, what are you up to? Paul in the prison, God, what are you up to? Even Jesus on the cross, why have you abandoned me, God? But God was in Christ, reconciling to himself the whole world. So pay attention to your life, the details, the life that God has given you in gift and grace. Given, it's a gift. And then you will begin to see the signs of God's saving grace is everywhere.
So I want to end with three points. Three principles that we learn from Joseph's unjust suffering that will carry all of us. Number one, maintain a clear conscience. Are they coming up? Good. We cannot stop others from treating us unfairly. But a good life lived in the light of Christ means that we are not the victims of our own sin or the sins of others. We're not ruled by that sin. So maintain a clear conscience. Number two, keep on doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do what God has called you to do. That's it. That's the Christian life. Find out what God has called you to do and do it. Remember a few months ago I asked, there are the two most important days of your life. One was the day that you were born, and the second is... Nah, you recognise that it was a trap last time. You, the first one is you recognise the day you were born, and the second most important day is the, the day you find out the reason why you were born. And it's to live for the glory of God. One of the earliest church fathers, St. Irenaeus, said a human, uh, the, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's why Jesus says, I've come to give you life in all its fullness. And number three, practice God's presence. Learn communion with your father. Remember when Joseph was in prison on false charges? Genesis 39, 21 says, And the Lord was with Joseph and showed his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the guards. God was with him. So just as Joseph went into the pit of prison, he then rose to second in command. Just as Jesus went to the cross and the tomb and even to hell itself, yet he rose again to new life. Just as you three have gone down into the grave, into the water, because Jesus rose again, you came back out the water, praise God. I didn't hold you down forever because Christ is raised from the dead. We talked about that, do you remember? And you rise because Christ rose. And so even in this symbol is the act of death and burial. But because of Christ, you have the promise of resurrected life, which is supernatural. And like Joseph saving his family from starvation, the Christian life is about feasting on the bread of life. Through prayer and praise and confession and repentance and joy in the Holy Spirit, we find that Jesus Christ is all and everything that we need. All right? He's everything. Even when you feel he's not enough. He is, because he's told us he is, all right? He keeps smiling at me, it's lovely. I'm going to finish with this saying. It's one of the most impacting statements, sentences that I've ever read. We do not praise God because he's caused us to triumph, but to praise God is to triumph. That's where the victory is, in our worship of our holy God who loves us and gave himself for us so that we could become clothed with the righteousness of Christ and live for him.
1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.